Uh, today, I want to share with you the study of a passage that comes from Paul's letter to Philippians. I think it's a very practical, but also a very underrated passage of Scripture. It deals with our motives and service uh, in the body of Christ and how these motives or how these intentions affect uh, our fellowship with believers. It affects our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and really the effectiveness of the body on the whole. We're going to drill down to what really is a difficult situation in which Paul describes both appropriate and inappropriate motives for service and how he dealt with people attacking him from within the body. And then lastly, we're going to see why your motives for service matter in everything from the decisions that you make to the actions that you take. Well, one of my favorite parts of my job is interviewing candidates for open positions. I tried to count it up, and I think that I've hired around 20 full-time positions in my department at the Union or at Athletics. So that means that if you conservatively estimate two or three people for each interview, that's about 40 to 60 face-to-face interviews. And as part of the candidate evaluation, one of the things that I always like to ask is what motivates you? What gets you going? And the answers that I get in that moment tell me a lot about a person, but it always amazes me to see how many people have a difficult time answering that question. I understand that people are motivated by different factors. It could be relationships, it could be money, it could be prestige, power, stability. But a lot of people have never thought about it, especially as it specifically pertains to them or they don't know how to articulate it. Well, what about you? What motivates you? Or more specifically, what motivates you to serve as part of the body of Christ? Did you know that someday all believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ for rewards and that motives will be in view during that conversation? We're going to see that today from Scripture. What will you say in that moment? What will I say? Will we be rewarded for the good deeds done with the right motives or will our motives prove our deeds worthless? Today, I want you to look at this situation with me, and based on what you see, I want you to consider where you would fit in this story, or even how it applies in your life today. Be introspective, search yourself, and be honest with yourself about where you're at on this matter. Because truthfully, the body benefits from your faithfulness, and it's more effective when we are all walking worthy of our calling, when we all conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay, so first, we're going to do a quick overview of the book of Philippians. We're going to see the themes in this book and both the general and specific context of our message. And next, we're going to organize uh, the terms and phrases that Paul used to describe the motives of people in this situation. And then finally, we're going to see why it matters to us. We're going to see how it impacts the motives on the body of Christ and the impact of motives on our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, Philippians is really one of the most uplifting and positive books in the Bible. So many of the practical or motivational verses that we use in our Christian life are here in Philippians. We see that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He gives us comfort in our anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds. He says to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, which we're in. 
and we're supposed to appear as lights in the world to them. He says to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which is gonna have a big application for us here. But with humility of mind, regard one another's is more important than yourselves. There's so much here. There's so much in this letter. When you think about a theme for this book, I don't think that you can narrow it down to just one, but I think that you can get them all within these four. We're gonna see that individual humility for the sake of the body is a big theme here. Individual humility. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another's is more important than yourselves. And really, the outcome of humility is unity. You can't have unity without humility. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I can see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm with one mind and one spirit, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, intent on one purpose. Unity is a huge theme in Philippians. The next thing is fellowship, our participation in the body. That's why we've called this message sincere participation. When you think about fellowship, you might think of the whole church coming together on a Wednesday night to eat a meal or a Sunday night. That's not really what Paul had in mind. He had in mind all of the body coming together, uniting around a common purpose to accomplish a goal. That's fellowship, and that's participation, and that's what he's getting out here. And of course, you can't read Philippians and miss the joyful perspective that we're supposed to have as believers, regardless of our circumstances. We're going to see here in a second, Paul's in prison. He maintains joy. He rejoices several times in this book, really just about everything. So here is uh, some general context of our passage. We see that in Philippians 1, in the first 11 verses, it's really his introduction, his thanksgiving, and his well-wishing. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, for you all in view of your participation in the gospel, in view of your fellowship. That's why he's so happy with them. And then our passage is going to come out of uh, this second section, which is really just situational report of his circumstances. He writes back to the Philippians and tells them what's going on. And in this situational report, he details some of the motives for people that have believed. And then final, finally, he gives his eternal perspective and practical exhortation at the end of chapter one. That's where his famous, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain passage is. So let's get the immediate context. Right before our passage, he says here, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's imprisoned. And he's saying that these circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So you might say, how can that be? How can that be that he's in prison and the greater progress of the gospel is happening? Well, he's chained to the members of Praetorian Guard that are rotating in and out every day. He's in house arrest, so people are coming in and out, and he's really preaching to anybody who will listen. He's giving them the gospel message. And it's having an effect on people, as the word of God always does. And people are beginning to boldly proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
So connect the context of this verse with our passage, because our passage started out with some, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Who are these people? Who are these some? Look at verse 14. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. These people are believers. They're brethren who have trusted in Christ. That's a big deal, and it's going to have an impact on our message. Who is preaching? Most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment. Brethren who have trusted in the Lord. And then he starts our passage here today by saying, some of them, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. They're brethren who have trusted Christ. So let's get into it. Let's characterize the motives in this passage so that we can make an appropriate application. We're going to see when we get down to verse 17, it's going to be pretty clear that there are both impure and pure motives. So let's start our organization of the passage like this. There are impure and pure motives. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. The word envy here is the Greek word phonos. Phonos envy is listed as a deed of the flesh in Galatians 5, and it stands in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. In the context that Paul uses it here, and really is supported by some of the other descriptors that we'll see, phonos envy isn't just jealousy, but it's a special type of jealousy. It isn't simply wanting what someone else has. It's really a phonos envy carries the idea that your feelings for someone are so corrupted or that they've decayed so much that you actually want bad things for them. It's less about aspiring to be at their level and more about depressing them down to your level. It's different from plain jealousy. Let me explain or demonstrate from my personal experience and just confess I've been jealous of others' gifts in this body. I know that it's my pride driving myself, but when I get honest with myself, I've wanted what they have. I've jealously desired, for example, to have Hunter's sacrificial heart for ministry and the leadership and administrative ability that he and people like Brandy have. They're better organized than I am. They can program better than I can. They can effectively handle a variety of situations and personalities that come up in ministry, especially children's ministry. I've wished that I've had that. I've been jealous of Garrett's talent with a guitar and his microphone and his ability to stand up and lead worship. I think that's so cool. I wish I could do that. And what about JB's ability to teach the Word of God? Who hasn't thought about how cool it would be to know what he knows or to teach what he teaches as clearly as he teaches it? I have. I've overly admired and desired all of these things, sometimes out of jealousy. However, I don't phonos envy them. I don't want bad things for them. I'm certainly not happy when bad things happen to them. I genuinely desire good for them, and as a matter of fact, I pray for them. Because I know that their success, to use their gifts, talents, and abilities in this body, is all of our success. When they're effective, the body's effective, and that matters. 
But these people in our passage didn't have acute envy or jealousy for Paul. The type of jealousy and envy that they had for Paul is dangerous. And it's really the type of envy that reveals a person's heart. It isn't a stretch to say that when you have this type of envy for someone, you really would rather that they just not be around. Maybe you even wish they were dead. It's this type of envy that made Saul want to kill David. It's this type of envy that did make Cain kill Abel. And it's this type of envy that motivated the chief priests to want to put Jesus to death. Scripture shows us that in all of these circumstances, this type of envy leads to minds set on death. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so selfish that you would kill for your position? Or for power? Or for notoriety? Or for recognition? Or for money? Or just because you were sick of seeing someone else's success? Can you imagine having those thoughts about another believer? Because that's what's happening here. Be careful. Because if you find yourself defaming or maligning someone, or you find yourself wanting bad things for somebody, or you're happy when bad things happen to them, or if you want to take somebody down a few pegs so that your position will be elevated, you're in bad company. And by the way, think about how God dealt with Saul. Think about how God dealt with Cain and all the rest in Scripture whose minds were set on death. The bottom line is that phonos envy stands in opposition to unity and it handicaps the body. Paul mentioned strife with envy. Strife here is verbal quarreling or being argumentative or contentious. We see from the context of this passage that it fits to say that these people were verbally attacking and using words to disrupt his credibility. I think they were probably saying something like, if Paul were really God's apostle to the Gentiles, then why is he imprisoned? If this know-it-all so great and was really sent by God, why is he always getting chased from town to town? Why is he getting beaten and stoned and shipwrecked? Why is he thrown in jail? Where's his protection? Really what they wanted was to take away his reputation and hope that theirs would be built up. They wanted to glorify themselves. Have you ever noticed or known anybody like that? Have you ever been like that? Have you ever listened to someone verbally attack another believer, either face-to-face or behind their back, so that they could gain some sort of advantage? Even if it were just to lessen the reputation of them so that theirs would be built up? That's what's happening here. That's what these people are doing to Paul. And strife just like envy, stands in opposition to unity and it handicaps the body. Next. Oops, getting ahead of myself. Envy, strife. Next, Paul goes to the positive. He writes, some, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. We established that envy was ill will towards someone, and now Paul contrasts that ill will with well-intentioned goodwill. Goodwill here is pretty straightforward, and it comes from a word that literally means good opinions, good thoughts, or good intentions. He's contrasting the ill-willed motives of those preaching from envy and strife with the good intentions of those preaching pure or sincere motives. 
Paul's saying here that there are some people who don't like me proclaiming Christ, that there are some who hold me in high regard, and they're hoping to speak the word of God without fear. Goodwill is a pure motive. Goodwill for others who accurately proclaim the word of God promotes unity, and it builds up the body. The next is love. He expounds on, Paul expounds on his argument concerning these people who preach with good intentions to tell us why they do it. He says, some to be sure of preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill, the latter do it out of love. He says they do it out of agape love. And you guys know this, but agape love, is, it's, it's what desires the good for others. It's an unconditional and or sacrificial concern for others. Paul's saying that these people proclaiming Christ out of goodwill and love, they have good motives for him. They're faithfully participating in his ministry and vis-a-vis the ministry of Jesus Christ by helping him take the message out to people uh, while he's held in prison. They're doing it out of love. Just like goodwill, agape love for others promotes unity in the body, and it builds it up. In the next phrase, Paul writes to give us further insight on pure motives when he says, they do it out of love knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The believer speaking the word without fear or goodwill and love for Paul and Christ knew that he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. By the way, it was Jesus Christ who appointed him. Same person who appoints us in ministry and in service. He said that these people know I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the ones that had pure motives understood that. This is buy-in of the message. We have a message, we have a purpose, not just at Stillwater Bible, but as the church as a whole. This is unity. Those who knew that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel were well-intentioned and loving brethren who understood that even though Paul was in prison, that he was the person set aside to make a case for the gospel. They bought into that message and they actively participated in the ministry of Jesus Christ alongside Paul. This is buy-in. And when people buy into the purpose, it promotes unity and builds up the body. Now we're gonna get to the root of the matter. He said, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. The fact that Paul characterizes believers in this situation using this word is a big deal. It is. The phrase selfish ambition is only one word in the Greek, and it's not used often in scripture, but in the context that Paul wrote it, it describes the motives of an ambitious person driven by rivalry. That's a big deal. They're supposed to be united around a common message, but these people are motivated by their rivalry. Aristotle, in the centuries before Paul wrote, used this word uh, to mean someone who is electioneering for office or attempting to gain popularity by the use of defamation. You and I might think of campaign ads in September, October, November of an election year where they're mudslinging, trying to depress somebody down so that they can be lifted up, so that they can glorify themselves. It's the same thing. 
The word can also refer to a mercenary or someone who did something or did a job without regard for morality or ethics. It was the equivalent to them mudslinging, cheap-shotting, or sucker-punching. But no matter what definition you apply, you can't get around the truth that these brethren, people who were supposed to be united around a common purpose, preached Christ with the wrong and even destructive motives. Lives were changing out in society, and these people wanted the notoriety that Paul was getting from preaching the gospel message. They wanted him out so that they could slip in. We don't know if these people believed on a firsthand, based on a firsthand message that they got from Paul, whether it was somebody else that gave it to him, but they envied Paul with a special kind of jealousy. And they were glad that Paul was in jail so that they could defame him and glorify themselves. Look at what he reveals about these uh, people's motives next when he says that they think to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Really, these new or immature believers are verbally attacking Paul while he's unable to defend himself. They're sucker punching him. They're trying to capitalize on his imprisonment by taking this powerful, life-changing message and they're using it for their own glory. Not only that, but they're intentionally trying to cause Paul added stress to his chains while he's in prison by running him down with malintent, purposefully saying all kinds of negative things about him. I've said that Paul's use of this word is a big deal, and it is. At the beginning of chapter two, later in the book, he's gonna call back to this. He's gonna flesh out this framework by coming back to this section. And it's almost like he's passively speaking to these people through his letter to the Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard yourselves or regard others as more important than yourselves. And then he gives the example of Christ's humility to justify his message. Selfish ambition stands in opposition to unity and it handicaps the body. The final classification that Paul uses here is a summary statement, what then? Oops, did it again. He says, what then? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. A pretense is literally an outward showing. It's putting up a front. If someone's posturing to look like something they're not, they're acting with pretense. And that reputation fits the character and the immaturity of these people that are envious of Paul. And now again, Paul contrasts pretense, this false front, with truth, implying sincerity or straightforwardness. So on one hand, we have believers posturing as if they're a big deal, serving out of envy and strife and intending to kick Paul while he's down. And then we have those who brought, bought into the message of Jesus Christ and they're serving out of goodwill and love, doing it all sincerely and straightforward. No pretense, no posturing, no ulterior motives. They're just proclaiming Christ for the right reasons. And it's a beautiful sentiment that Paul is able to say, look, no matter what motives you have, you're proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And I'm rejoicing because that's my goal too. Paul's bottom line and objective and goal in his life was to preach the gospel, to proclaim Jesus Christ. 
And even though these new believers, these immature, selfish, glory-seeking people are acting from the wrong motives, the ultimate objective is accomplished, and that is reason for rejoicing. Paul obviously disagrees with the methods and the motives that they're using, but he knows that God can and will use the broken and the defective to bring about his plan. Whether or not they do it with the right motives is up to them. And really, that's what Paul's detractors needed. These new believers needed a mature body. They needed some good soil that would feed and nourish them so that they could grow on to maturity. They needed a place where somebody with the gift of shepherd could be an example for them and guide them in the paths of righteousness. They needed a teacher that would show them the difference between serving out of selfish ambition and serving out of love for Jesus Christ and for others. They needed someone with the gift of mercy who would love on them, even though they were selfish and broken and spiritually mature. They needed someone with the gift of exhortation who could coach them up where they're wrong and encourage them where they're right. Isn't that what Paul teaches in Ephesians 4? that the body will build, that it will grow and mature if the individual parts are functioning appropriately? There's going to be times when your fellow members of the body function properly and with the right motives. But there's going to be times when members of your body function improperly and with the wrong motives. Like Paul, you can't necessarily dictate people's motives to them or make them more faithful to serve. However, you can maintain your service to the body and your life with Jesus Christ. And in this way, through your gifts, talents, and abilities, build the body up or to help guide them. Paul found a common bottom line objective to rally around, which was the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He didn't like how they were doing it, but he found common ground and he rejoiced. In chapter three, Paul says, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. If your motives line up with these impure motives, you're lining yourself up against Jesus Christ. So we have to know our motives. Which brings us to our next point. At this point, you might say, wait a minute. If, if Paul just spent at four full verses on these guys' motives just to say that as long as Christ is proclaimed, well, he'll rejoice, then why do motives even matter? And that's an important question, one we're about to answer. So let's wrap this up by thinking about this question. Number one, motives are capable of either improving or impairing the effectiveness of the body. And we're going to pull this apart in just a second. Number two, a person's motives affect their rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Each of these two points are easily found in Scripture, but they could each be an entire lesson in and of themselves. And due to time, I'm going to do my best to quickly explain how these areas affect your motives or how your uh, motives affect these areas, maybe. We'll do the Cliff Notes version, and I'm going to do... Uh, more telling and less selling. 
Uh, next semester, I plan on teaching Philippians on Wednesday night, so if you want to get into the details or get more specific, we can cover it then. But just follow along with me here as we look at this. Ephesians 1, and 23 says that all things are in subjection under Christ, that God has given them his, him his head over the body and over the church. God gave Jesus his head over the church, and the church is Christ's body. And listen to what he says in Romans. You don't have to turn there, but listen. He says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're all members of the one unified body where we're supposed to be unified. And the members have different but complementary functions. Scripture shows that the body of Christ consists of many different parts and that each part has a function designed to complement one another. When the parts work in unity, the body is more effective and efficient in accomplishing its objectives. Makes you think about whether or not the body's been unified the last 50 years. That objective that we're supposed to be accomplishing is the spiritual birth, growth, and maturity of humankind. That's the evangelism and training that we call making disciples at Stillwater Bible. And what happens if each individual part doesn't function appropriately? What happens when there's bitterness, when there's gossip, when there's clamor, when there's envy, strife, sinful anger? What happens if all that noise is in the system? The implication is that that stunts growth. The body isn't built up. It's less likely to grow and mature where there's no kindness, tenderheartedness, or forgiveness. There's no growth. Just like our human bodies, the body of Christ is less effective and it's less efficient when parts are broken, when they're absent, disjointed, infected, or working against one another. And that's what's happening. So your motives matter. Your motives matter. Envy, strife, selfish ambition, and pretense all stand in opposition to unity, and they handicap the body. Goodwill, love, buy-in of the appropriate message and of the appropriate purpose, and truth and sincerity all promote unity, and they all build up the body in love. Next, let's talk about how they affect your rewards. It's important to understand and mentally separate the difference between a gift and reward before we look at the judgment seat of Christ, but Scripture makes a clear distinction between the two. And if Christians don't apply this distinction, it's going to affect how they interpret how someone obtains eternal life. A gift is something freely given. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God not as a result of work so that no one may boast. A reward is something that's earned. It's something that you do to get something. And I know that most of you understand this, but it's important to distinguish the differences before we talk about the judgment seat. Eternal life is a gift by faith. Therefore, we cannot earn it. Eternal life cannot be a reward. There's absolutely nothing that you can do on the basis of your merit by which you can gain eternal life. 
If you could, then Jesus died needlessly. Why'd he come? If you could do something to earn eternal life yourself. But rewards are different. We can earn rewards by our faithfulness or by our works, if you will, to serve in the body. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, you have eternal life. It's a gift given freely without cost. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. I'm going to go through this quickly, but I've bolded it so that you can pay attention to the important parts. It's all important, but those especially. He says, take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they'll be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. There's nothing for them at the judgment seat of Christ. They're getting it now. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charitable, charitable giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done is in secret will reward you. Can that be eternal life? It can't be. He's talking about rewards, not gifts. In verse 5, he says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners so that they will be seen by people. That's their motivation. Same motivation that Paul's detractors had. He says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Eternal life is a gift, it's not a reward. That can't be in in view here. Inherently, by definition, a gift and a reward are two separate things. Jesus dealt with sin, all sin, for all time on the cross, and then dealt with the result of sin, which is death, by conquering it through his resurrection. So because of Jesus' work, we have gained the gift of eternal life by faith in him and will never stand condemned for our sin. We'll never stand in condemnation for our sin. We're close to out of time, but if you want to talk about this more, about why we'll never stand condemned for our sin at the judgment seat of Christ or any other time for that matter, Join me on Wednesday nights next semester and we'll dive deeper into the specifics. So you say, if we're never going to stand condemned for our sin, then what what about this judgment? Doesn't Paul say that we all will stand before God to give an account of ourselves or we'll all stand before Christ to give an account of ourselves to him? If this isn't for sin, if this isn't for what we've done, what's it for? The judgment seat of Christ is a time of evaluation in which Jesus Christ will reward us for our good deeds. He gives a, we don't have time to go into it, but he gives a great example there in 1 Corinthians 3 of rewards. And our goal as believers is to one day stand before Jesus Christ and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. The emphasis for our rewards is on our faithfulness to serve him. And whether or not we hear those words on that great day is dependent on our faithfulness to appropriately use the gifts, talents, and abilities that he's given us. All believers at the judgment seat have eternal life. 
This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't an indicator of whether or not you have eternal life when you're at the judgment seat of Christ, except for that you do have it. That they will not have the same position. Not everybody at the judgment seat of Christ is going to have the same position or experience in the kingdom and probably the eternal state. Paul was able to rejoice in the situation we saw today but the mission that Jesus Christ, because the mission that Jesus Christ gave him was accomplished. Some people serve out of a desire to be recognized or to promote themselves. That's clear. They may desire to be popular or respected, even above others in the body, like Paul's detractors were. This service is worthless from God's perspective. They get their reward in full. The goal may be accomplished, but there's no reward for them at the judgment seat. And the bottom line is this, we shouldn't serve for recognition. We shouldn't serve for popularity or for prestige or for position. There's no place in effective ministry for jealousy, for envy, for self-righteousness, or for unhealthy competition among believers. If service becomes a competition to be seen or heard, especially in an attempt to make people think that you're better than you are, or that you're smarter than them, or that you're holier than them, or that you're wealthier than them, or that you're more effective than them, then it's nothing more than posturing. It's pretense. And it's done with the wrong motives. If your service is to promote yourself instead of Jesus, you're doing it wrong. These examples all fall under selfish ambition and impure motives that Paul mentions in this passage. So as an act of worship and out of obedience, we use our gifts in order to serve so that the body grows and that the message of Jesus Christ is perpetuated throughout the world. Let's see some application. Number one, participate in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Philippians did. Paul funded a lot of his ministry because of the provisional gifts that they sent him. There's lots of ways to participate. God has given each one of us a spiritual gift so that we can. Not everybody has the same spiritual gifts, so we need all of them, so that the body builds up and and grows. So find out what your gift is and be faithful to employ it. I skipped number one, buy in. We have a message. Our message is to make disciples. That's not just Stillwater Bible. That's the message we get from Jesus Christ. That's the commission he gave us evangelize to unbelievers so that they'll put their faith in Christ. And then once they have, train them and equip them to do the same thing so that the message is perpetuated. Buy into that message. Unify around that common purpose of proclaiming Christ. Number two, consider the sincerity of your motives. That's what this whole thing's about. Be truthful with yourself. Get introspective and think about what motivates you. And make sure that you're serving out of a love and an appreciation for Jesus Christ and for the body of Christ. That's when you know you've done it right or you're doing it right. Two, serve for the effectiveness of the body. When all of the parts of the body are working in unity, the body is built up in love. That's what we're supposed to do. The appropriate working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what we're supposed to do. Three, maintain unity in the body. That's a big deal. We're all in it together. And when the people start taking shots at one another, 
The body becomes less affected, becomes disjointed. We all have the same purpose. And when we work together towards that common goal, marching forward with the same direction, we're doing it right. Guard against behaviors detrimental to the body. That doesn't mean just guard yourself, but look for it in the body. Think about how you interact with one another and whether or not it promotes unity. And then two, seek wisdom in difficult situations. This situation that Paul's dealing with is difficult. He's got people sucker punching him and cheap shotting him. And he's trying to find a way to make, to, to make this a positive. And he does it. But Paul had gifts that we don't. He had establishment gifts. He could understand what these people's motives are. It's not always so easy for us to see. And so in those times, we have to seek wisdom. There are people in this body who can help you with that. So seek in those difficult situations.